you heard of Akira the Don? The Don. He's got clout. Word around town. Welcome to the meaning stream. Three, five, two. It's meaning crisis and chill. Part 14, tonight, tonight, here on everybody's favorite daily DJ stream. World-renowned international wave load Akira the Dawn will be live scoring a live lo-fi score. A live lo-fi live scoring of a live lo-fi live score lecture. A lo-fi live lecture, a lo-fi lecture, a lo-fi lecture. A live scored lo-fi lecture by Joe. It's true. Starring Viveki John on the subject of cynics and stoics and Epicureans. Come on. Smasheth ye yonder like. Engageth ye with yonder discord. Jumpeth thy up and down upon a table of some kind. Be glad, brothers and sisters, be glad. It's meaning o'clock. Hurrah! Yeah, 
letting chiffiness and truth Wave to the guts in the bottom of your heart Wave to the guts in the bottom of your heart While evidence is How many extensions the gods gave you and you didn't use them? At some point you have to recognize which world it is that you belong to What power rules it from what source you spring that there is a limit to the time assigned to you and if you don't use it to free yourself it will be gone and will never return it will never return go Lagos Welcome, welcome. Word around town, word around the town, word around town. Word around town, clout season is upon us. I'm fortunate, I suppose, to say, do you know who Akira the Dawn is? Of course, no, those, he's amazing. The synthwave stuff with you and a couple of the other guys we know, it's incredible, incredible. I get such a kick out of that. Yo! Yo, it's that synthwave guy himself. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's cracking, baby? How you doing? Yeah! Welcome to the stream of meaning, baby. It's a beautiful day to be live here at the peak of recorded human civilization by Joe. Shout out to everyone who logs in live. Across space, across time. Here. Here and now. Come on. Broadcasting live from Dripping Springs, Texas. It's the meaning stream. It's everybody's favorite daily DJ activity. How's everyone doing out there? Thank you, Matt Lally, for the support. Says, how do you do, Maz? Maz, how do you do? Answer the man, how do you do? Huh? BJ says, I'm good, Matt, you? I like this, people are, people are conversing in the super chat. Hey, that's a great idea. Everybody converse in super chat. <laughs> uh, Point Curation says, thanks for creating something. Hey, well, word around town, if you don't make stuff, there is no stuff. Word around town. Word around town. Dan Frank says, Akira the Don, where's that full interview with you and JBP? Still waiting for them to send it over. And uh, of course, you'll be the first to know when it's uh, over. <laughs> Yo! Uh, in the meanwhile, there's lots of uh, Jordan Peterson interviews that you can watch because uh, he's got a book out today. Brand new book. Brand new book, baby. Go check it out. I'm sure you already are. I'm sure everybody is checking out the new book, has ordered the new book, has got the book on um, on some kind of, you know, train or something. Inbound thing, a device, reading device. How do you read anyway? Do you guys read books? Like, do you, do you read them on a phone? Do you store them on a Kindle? Do, do people still have Kindles? I found my Kindle. Well, my wife found my Kindle. Very excited. Um, my wife found my Kindle. I can finally finish the epilogue of The Black Swan. Matt Lally says he's pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Nice weather near me, how about with you? Uh, weather's lovely, you know, went for a lovely walk this morning. Didn't have to wear a coat or nothing, I had a t-shirt on. I just went out like this, you know, just like straight like this. Whoa. What is going on there? Whoa. Hey. Yeah, you know, I went out like this, you know, just, um, 
you know, just in the meaning way, uh, leopard velvet pants and the MAZ t-shirt, you know? And uh, it was very, very, um, you know, it felt nice, it felt nice, baby, it felt nice out there. Strange to think, just a week and a half, two weeks ago, it was uh, Narnia, you know? Life is crazy. Life is crazy. Cindy Bailey says, if I read a book, it's got to be made of trees. Yeah, I feel you. They smell good, you know, those tree books. Tree books, they feel good, they smell good. Anyone who think they might be good, it might be good, a tree book. XX Madog Madra says, I'm at work all day. I can't sit down at this time in my life. There's plenty of time for sitting down later on. Oh, someone just regimed Jocko. Did Jocko come on screen? I didn't see it. I wasn't looking. And I, I'm constantly scared with these things that they don't work, you know. Let me know if you just saw a, a Jocko apparition appear in the sky. Lime Green Skittles, how you doing? <laughs> Oh, I just sorry, I understand. Matt Lally was conversing with BJ. BJ says he's run out of money and he can't carry on the conversation in the super chat arena. <laughs> Digimedia Dude, 499. Much love, you're amazing and inspiring. You are breathtaking. Thank you. Thank you. Jocko or no Jocko? Was there a Jocko or no Jocko? Jocko didn't work. Why would that be? Hmm. Well, I'm not going to worry about that right now. Yeah. Jocko doesn't work, Wilma does work. I wonder why. I'll have to look into it. Ah, that was me hoping I would be able to go to bed after the stream. No chance. We have all night fixing floating heads. Life is good. Life is beautiful. Uh, big shout out to Dave Rubin, by the way. David Rubin. Who said, ah, yeah, secure the dawn. He does the synthwave. Well, there is actually some synthwave-inspired material on the album that's coming out later this month. So Dave Rubin's obviously connected to the ether. Dave Rubin understands, like, he's, he's obviously hardwired into the source. Hardwired into the source, so to speak. I don't know 
why Jocko isn't working. I gotta look into his uh, his circuitry, you know. to get after it. I hope you're all having a wonderful day, however you are. How's your march? How's your march going? <laughs> Professor J. Vault's Dibustoria. Says, Jocko not working? Good. Gives Akira the chance to look into further understanding of his systems. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, he worked earlier and now he doesn't work. I haven't changed anything. Interesting how that can go. It's an amazing thing, you know, I was on, um, who was I? I was watching DJ White Gold on Twitch yesterday. He's the DJ on Twitch who always has a big picture of Rihanna next to him. And uh, his laptop stopped working, you know. And he was very befuddled. It was, it was kind of, kind of, uh, it was one of those, like, God whooping you type situations. Because he'd just been talking about how he can't multitask. He can't do two things at once. He was talking about how he couldn't possibly fix a computer and talk at the same time. And then his computer broke almost immediately. He was very befuddled, you know, and his wife came on and told some stories and he was like, Bleh. And it was, uh, it was a beautiful thing, man. It's very reassuring. See that everyone goes through this. Everyone goes through this. Everyone, all of us out here, um, you know, traversing these internet lands and utilizing these new technologies that collapse all day and all the time. What happens to us all, baby? We are not alone, brothers and sisters. We are not alone. Yeah, we've been doing this for nearly a year now, and still, every day, something goes wrong. Do you know what else happens every day? A whole lot of things go right. So many things we could not count them. So many things. So many things go right. If you spent, if you just sat down and wrote them down, that's all you would ever do until you died. That's how many things go right every day. Just in this sphere, just in this particular domain here. Everything, like everything's going right. Look, the chat's scrolling. The signal is broadcasting. The, the logo thing there is spinning. The music is playing. The scroll up there is scrolling. The stars are twinkling. So much is going right, right now. It's a wonderful thing by Joe. For the international high five, all I want to know from you is where you are and give me an example of something that's going right. So often we don't seem to think about the things that are going right, that are working. We, we focus on the things that have broken or that did not work. They're not doing what we would want them to do when so many things are going just perfectly. Just perfectly. Shout out to DJ White Gold. Oh, I really liked about I really liked DJ White, White Gold's wife coming on and talking about you know the experience of being a DJ wife. That's something that uh, I mean I can't relate to, <laughs> but I know someone who can. I know someone who can relate to that. <sighs> uh, 
Shaky Pavel says, Grateful for Maz. And Bruce Dequire says, What glorious synchronicity. Patricia says, The brain only learns from failure. Kyle says, uh, is, is, is uh, confessing a missing, a missing of sway. Kyle misses sway. Let's see you at Boston. Listening to the stream feels just right. I agree. And I'm not even listening to it. Such a touch in the rocker with a lovely cup of tea, detaching from other people's anger. Feels good, baby. Feels good. Patricia, home with my kid. That's working for me. Sway, utter contentment and the chance to move up the social hierarchy I find myself in. Bravo. Uh, Sheila's gravy worked out well, and that's wonderful. Multiverse media spaces in the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone, and that is wonderful. Uh, MA is talking about a Sax Squatch and Akira collab. Sax Squatch. Sax, sax Squatch. Is Sax Squatch someone who plays saxophone on YouTube It rings a bell? And you know me, I do love some sax. Do love some epic sax activities, you know? Uh, Melbourne uh, Code is running just right for Django Wolf. We were talking over the dinner table about the glory of code. You know, me, me, me and my wife and my son were talking about the glory of code. Saying He was saying, uh, he was asking about websites to make websites. And then he thought that was quite funny. He said, Dada, what made the website before there was a website? And I said, well, people used to code websites. And this was quite shocked him, you know, he was quite shocked by this. He does coding in Minecraft and he finds it very annoying, but he does it, you know, quite a lot. I said, everything was code once, you know, everything was code. At one point, you know, you were, I, I, I used to code websites. I would literally write in text pads and, and do little arrows pointing this way and some words pointing that way. And I'd keep doing it until something, until a GIF appeared on, on the screen, you know. Keep doing it until something magical happened. When it happened, you'd be very, very excited and very glad and very grateful and very proud of yourself, you know, for having having done that just purely by writing some gibberish in a text pad that wasn't gibberish. It had meaning. It might look like gibberish to someone who had not understood the code, who had not learned the code, you see. Anyway, magical shit. Uh, that didn't last for too long. Then Hercules pivoted into a game of Would You Rather. He likes the game of Would You Rather. Would you rather have no legs or have no arms? And you go, well, you know, legs i guess yeah i use my arms quite a lot you know and uh, then he's like would you rather have to poop all day or have to pee all day and like, okay here we go and then it just goes in from there he says would you rather oh what was this would you rather what was this one about hell can't remember anyway i'll get him up maybe maybe we'll get hercules on here to do a game of would you rather uh that sounds like a good thing to do on the on the celebratory one year stream we could just play would you rather all day how about that um, sounds good to me. Jeff Catskill, un NY, unpacking a new home. is going swimmingly. I love unpacking a new home. What did you unpack first? The correct answer is the stereo. Andrew Komaromi Scarborough, the lights are on. Look, the lights are on. It's a miracle. It's a miracle, OG Jukebox. It's a miracle. Uh, Robert Easley, Lombard, Illinois, and things are going with right with my family. Miracle. Dodecaman, Tri-State, perfectly happy to be here. Seems to be working. Miracle. Let me put the chats on screen. Shouts out to everyone locked in live. We've got people here from Twitch. We've got people here from YouTube. We've got people who come here from the, the, the lands of, of ThinkSpot. Uh, we've got people from all over in, in this Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone, and it's wonderful to have you all here. Uh, if you're on YouTube, uh, please smash the like on the way in, and if, if you forgot to smash the like on the way in, uh, just double back and give it a good whack, you know? Give it a whack, uh, as if it were a helicopter and you, were, you had a wrench, you know? Uh, embrace, 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 Louisiana, grateful for the great Jocko head. As am I, as am I. I'm annoyed it isn't, isn't working, um, but I will fix it, you know. Oh, there it is, it's working again. 
That's interesting. It's back. Shoko Head is back. Hey! Look at that beautiful thing. Look at that beautiful thing. Amazing. Uh, amazing, amazing, amazing. Fool Killer Maryland. Something going right is my ever-growing Ultraman obsession. Ultraman's a G. Douglas Holloway, Houston, Texas. Thanks to the Maz and cooking supper for the fam. Get after it. Orsivi in Melbourne, Australia. Just ass assisted in a life-saving operation on a 24-day-old baby. Everything went well. Thanks to the gods. Hey! Man, if that ain't nice, I don't know what is. God bless you. Word XP, what's up? Uh, Sway Laduena's love and light aesthetic dodecaman says I thought it was a Yeti with a sax. Could be. Cindy Bailey, Merino Valley. I planted a few things in my small garden. Hopefully, I will have chilies, peas, lavender mint, basil, pumpkins, and watermelon soon. God is good. Mike Bess is PA. My daughter is growing up a good person by my humble estimations. That's nice. That's a nice thing to have happened. Well done. Congratulations on that. Good. Good. Good, good. Matt Lally. Open ampersand thing meaning... Ampersand, Amakira speaks mean exactly. I don't even remember what you call the sideways arrow and the other way pointing arrow. But I can write in that all day, baby. Mason says, shout out to the downfall of nihilism. Hurrah! Au revoir, nihilism. Yeah, creepy weirdo. Embrace to Quaz. Would you rather be Lieutenant Dan or Forrest Gump? International high five, let's get it. I never told you to stop holding it. No, I did not, not once. Not for a second. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. <sighs> well, if this ain't nice, I don't know what is. Meaning crisis and chill, let's get it. What's up, Nikolai Boots? You're in the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone. Hey, Didecaman. Dodecaman's high, high here. New here. We have a thing if someone's new here and they redeem the I'm new here thingy bob, they get a high five. So, everybody. Everybody, uh, high five Dodecaman, who's new on Twitch. Three, two, one. High five, Dodecaman. So nice to see you. All right, everyone get out of their notebooks. And if you're doing shots, uh, if you're playing the Gestalt drinking game or any of the other Viveki John drinking games, ready thyself. <laughs> <laughs> 
and steal thyself by Joe, because this one's going to be a powerful one. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we finished our look at the Axial Revolution in India. We took a look at um, what was going on uh, in uh, the Buddha's state of enlightenment. We took a look at some of the cognitive science in such awakening experiences. And then we moved to interpret following the sage advice of Bachelor, some of the Buddha's uh, pronouncements, trying to get beyond interpreting uh, his pronouncements as uh, propositions to be believed and instead understand them as provocations so that we enact enlightenment. And that means enacting the threat that we are facing and then enacting the psychotechnologies that can respond to it. Take a look at this in terms of ideas of parasitic processing, reciprocal narrowing, addiction, and the opposite of anagogic acceleration as opposed to reciprocal narrowing, and creating a counteractive dynamical system, um, the counteractive system of the Eightfold Path for successfully dealing with parasitic processing. So we saw that these higher states of consciousness, these awakening experiences, can bring about transformations that alleviate modal confusion, parasitic processing, uh, reciprocal narrowing, all many of the ways in which we fundamentally lose our agency in the world in a self-deceptive and self-destructive manner. I'd now like to return back to uh, what's happening after the Axial Revolution in the West. So Socrates was fortunate. Um, he had a great disciple in Plato. Plato was fortunate in that he had a great disciple in Aristotle. Aristotle had a great disciple, but he was not so fortunate. Aristotle's great disciple is not himself a great philosopher. He is another kind of great. He is Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is an example of the kind of thing that predates the actual revolution, the world conqueror. Alexander creates an empire and takes the Greek way of thinking throughout most of the known world in a way that reestablishes, in perhaps a dangerous manner, the pre-axial world. Alexander is so glorious that the line between being a human being and being a god is blurred. He creates a personal mythology in which he is a god-man, very much like the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, which might perhaps explain why uh, Alexander was so readily welcomed into uh, the courts of Egypt. Either way, what happens is a twisting of the world. Because not only, does Aris, uh, not only does Alexander represent a return to a preaxial way of being, he also represents a fundamental disruption to the world in which people had found themselves. Let's compare the world of Aristotle to the world of Alexander. 
Now, in order to do that, we have to understand that Alexander himself does not live very long. He dies in Babylon, that most ancient of cities. It's not clear what he dies of as a young age of 33. He has a child, but the child, of course, is too young and is therefore quickly killed. And <clears throat> um, his major generals fight amongst themselves, and they carve his empire up into four smaller empires that are perpetually at war with each other for about 300 years. So this period is known as the Hellenistic era. So if you're alive at the time of Aristotle, Chances are you live, if you're Greek, part of the Greek culture, you live in a polis. This is where we get cosmopolitan from. It doesn't mean city, it means a city-state, right? Like, for example, Athens and its surrounding agricultural supporting environment, or Sparta. Now, you know many of the other citizens. You know them face to face. We mentioned the idea that you know Athens is developing democracy. Remember when we discussed the sophists, and at least for the adult males, and that's a significant defect in this society. But I've already gone into that. But you're participating in your government in a direct manner. You live close to, accessible to you, the seat of that government. You often know personally people involved in the government. Sometimes even the leaders themselves. Everybody around you speaks your language. Everybody around you has ancestors, like you yourself do, stretching back beyond memory, who have lived in this place. Everybody around you has the same religion. Everybody has basically the same allegiances to this place. See, your polis just isn't just where you lived. Your polis is like such a tight relationship between agent and arena that one of the greatest punishments you could suffer in this world, the world of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, is to be ostracized, which is just, you're not killed, you're not imprisoned, you're not punished in any way, you're just told to leave the polis. And for many people, they would rather die or face imprisonment than be ostracized because the polis was such an embedded existence for them. Their identity was so enmeshed in it. So see, look how deeply connected you are to yourself, to your environment, to the people around you, to your government, to your culture, to your history. Alexander comes and smashes all of that. Greek culture is now distributed into Africa, the Levant, into Asia, Asia Minor, Asia Proper, right down to, out to the borders of India. You have Greek kingdoms, Bactria, that are integrating Greek culture with Buddhist philosophy and religion in what is modern-day Afghanistan. Now, what does this mean? Well, this means in the Hellenistic era, people are being moved around and shuffled around, and they're belo they belong to far-flung empires. You are now probably thousands of miles away from the seat of government. You do not participate in that government. Nor do you know personally most of the people or any of the people in it. The people around you might not have lived where you're living very long. You might not be living where you've been living very long. Your ancestors might have been from Athens and here you are dwelling in Asia Minor. 
The people around you speak different languages, worship different gods. Notice how all the connections are being lost. You don't have a connection to a polis. You don't have a connection to a, a, a shared linguistic group of any great extent, shared history, shared ancestry, shared religion. You're experiencing what Porteus and Smith and Brian Walsh called domicide. We'll come back to this later when we talk about the meaning crisis today. Domicide is the destruction of home. Now there's two ways in which domicide can occur. One of course is physical destruction of your house and that's important. But there's also cultural domicide in which you have a house, you have a dwelling, but it is not very much your home. Now we'll come back to this being unhomed again when we talk about our current situation. But notice how often we will use the language of loss of home to describe our current situation. We're, we often talk, talk about how we now feel unhomed in the cosmos. So people are experiencing this radical sense of domicide. They don't have deep connections to themselves, to each other, to their environment, to their history, to their cultural surroundings. They have very little, uh, very little political participation. They feel insignificant. You can go to sleep and you're part of the Ptolemaic Empire and you're wake up and you're part of the Seleucid Empire. So this is known as an age of anxiety, the Hellenistic period. The art changes, it becomes much more frenetic becomes much more realistic, it becomes much more organized around uh, sort of extremes and tragedy. The confidence that we saw in the earlier periods, the period of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle is gone. Greece itself has suffered a titanic civil war, the Peloponnesian War. Sparta defeats Athens, the home Socrates and Plato, one of the places where Aristotle did most of his work. Sparta is very quickly itself defeated by Thebes. Thebes very quickly loses its hegemony. So the Greek world loses, loses, and loses until, of course, it's overwhelmed by Macedonia and Alexander. So, whereas the Greek culture is spread throughout the world. It's also thinned. It loses its depth. So there's a change that starts to happen. You can see, as I said, in the art, the, uh, the expression of this, you can see it in what starts to happen in religions. There's a lot of syncretism. People are trying to create religions that integrate different cultural deities together. A Greek deity, for example, and an Egyptian deity are integrated together and perhaps into Serapis or something like that. You also see the elevation of mother goddesses to pan-cultural importance, like the mother goddess Isis, because of course, when you feel domicile, when you feel a loss of home, there is nothing that means home more to you than mother. And if you don't have that with your physical mother, what you want is some 
right? Divine mother that can make you feel at home no matter where you are in this fractured, domicile-laden world. But philosophy also responds. The axial age has left a powerful legacy. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And that project has not come to an end. But it does undergo transformation in the face of the Hellenistic meaning crisis. Up until now, the main thing that wisdom was trying to deal with was foolishness. And that's not abandoned, but that's now seen as insufficient. So one of the great philosophers of the Hellenistic period is Epicurus. And Epicurus famously said, call no man a philosopher who has not alleviated the suffering of others. So there's now a therapeutic aspect wisdom. Wisdom is now importantly about dealing with the anxiety and suffering that people are experiencing in the Hellenistic era. So a new model is created. So we've seen the idea, right, of the sage as somebody like Socrates who provokes the Axial Revolution you out of the cave, all of these wonderful and powerful images and figures, but a new metaphor emerges. The philosopher is the physician of the soul. A philosopher is somebody who can cure you of existential suffering. This becomes crucial. Now, many of these new philosophical schools, the Epicureans, for example, and the Stoics, take it upon themselves to try to exemplify Socrates. They try to exemplify Socrates. The Epicureans do this in a very unique way. They do this in a useful way of analyzing their position is to take them up on their own metaphor. What is their diagnosis of the disease that is afflicting people and what is their prognosis for the cure? Now the Epicureans are very relevant to us because they in some ways represent a very secular alternative in the midst of what was still a very religious world. And that is pertinent to us. So the Epicureans diagnose that our main problem is fear. Now that's interesting, and there's something right about that, but we have to slow down first. And here's, in order to get closer, about how we should try and appropriate what they're saying. The work of Paul Tillich here is especially uh, useful, especially the work he does, uh, does in his masterpiece, The Courage to Be, 
although he does not talk about the Epicurus very much, he concentrates on the Stoics, as we will as well, he nevertheless brings up important distinctions. This is the distinction between fear and a word you heard me use more often, which is anxiety. Now these terms are often used interchangeably, and we often and we also mix up the word anxiety with eagerness. We'll say, I'm so anxious to see you tonight. That's horrible. You shouldn't be anxious to see somebody. That means you're distressed, right? And you're suffering a loss of agency, and you have a nebulous sense of threat. That's, that person's terrifying. What you mean is you're eager to see them. So first of all, give up that meaning of anxious. Secondly, we use these terms interchangeably. And, you know, in everyday discourse, that's probably all right, because they do overlap in some ways, but they're important. It's important to at least talk about the polar differences between them. Fear is when you have an observable direct threat. If a tiger comes into this room, I experience fear because I have an observable threat. In a, in a very important sense, I know what to do. I may fail in doing it, but I know what to do. Okay? Anxiety is different. Anxiety is when the threat is nebulous. You're not quite sure, sure what it is, and you're not sure what to do. You don't know what to do. So, very often, when you're suffering existential issues, you experience anxiety. This is why this is the preferred term used by Kierkegaard or Heidegger. Although, Kierkegaard does use fear in, in, in one of his books. But that has more to do with something else. So, the Epicureans are often translated, I think, correctly. I'm not talking about, I'm not making a scholastic point, as talking about how we are suffering because we can't manage fear. I think a better way of understanding it, given this distinction and following on Tillich, is we suffer because we can't manage our anxiety. Because they think the fears they talk about are not really things that are a clear threat where we clearly know what to do. Okay. So, according to the Epicureans, basically we don't control our imagination and our thinking, and so we suffer from anxieties that cripple our ability to get a grip on the world. So, let me give you one. Many people are anxious about death. In fact, sort of prototypically, people will often say, well, they'll often use the existence of death as a way of talking about how their, how their life is ultimately meaningless. I'm going to die anyways. What does it matter? I'm going to die. And it's terrifying. I don't, like, it's going to, ah, I'm just afraid of death. We know that if you expose people to triggers about their own mortality, they become cognitively rigid, they go into something very much like this parasitic processing, they get locked down. 
right? Now there's, there's a couple things you can do. You can pursue immortality. And of course, the religions of the ancient world and some versions of the modern world offer this. I have very little to say for this other than as a cognitive scientist, I think that is an utterly doomed strategy. The evidence that your mind and your consciousness are completely dependent and emergent from your brain is overwhelming. And if one thing is indisputable, your brain dies. And when your brain dies, your consciousness, your character, yourself die with it. I know that's even, I suppose, antithetical to what many Buddhists believe, but that's, that's irrelevant. So I think the strategy of pursuing immortality is not going to work. It makes a fundamental confusion. It confuses somebody, something that's phenomenologically in, like mysterious to you with making a conclusion. Look, I can't experience my own death. I can't imagine it. Because whenever I'm trying to imagine being dead, I'm still consciously aware. And so death is like, oh. And therefore I conclude, well, there must be something about me that's right immortal because it's inconceivable that I can't be at some level. But of course that's false. And that points to what the Epicureans talk about, right? They talk about, there's another strategy. Instead of trying to achieve immortality, can you radically accept your mortality? Because it's indisputable that you're going to die. Now, how do you do that? Well, first of all, realize that you can't possibly be anxious about your death. Say, so, yes, I am. Okay, well, give the Epicureans a chance. First of all, if what you mean by this, your non-existence, and you say, ah, I just, I can't conceive of my non-existence. Well, okay, this is, this is a standard move by Epicurus. Well, what about all of the world before you were born? Do you have trouble conceiving of that? No. Does it terrify you that you didn't exist then? So your non-existence isn't itself terrifying. And you say, ah, but it's, it's the loss. Well, the problem with that, the Epicureans would say, is that's equivocal. Do you mean, right, reduction, or you do, mean, do you mean the absence? And you mean, well, death is total loss. And then they say to you, ah, but you can't ever experience total loss. They famously said the following, where I am, death is not. Where death is, I am not. What that means is, if I'm aware that I'm losing, I'm still alive. And if I've lost everything, I've lost awareness. And I can't be aware that I've lost anything. So that can't be what it means. Okay? So it means partial loss. Ah. So what you're actually afraid of is losing some of your agency. You're afraid of some of the reduction in your capacities as you're dying. But of course, you're doing that all the time. So what is it you're actually afraid of? 
Well, the Epicureans say you're afraid of losing what's good. Okay, well, what, what does that mean? And here, here's where the Epicureans, they are, are sort of very, very modern, right? They say, well, good is ultimately, you know, something like pleasure, and they got associated with hedonism, and that's not quite right. But they don't mean pleasure in terms of bodily sensation. They mean pay attention to those things that actually give you the most meaning. Oh, okay. Now, what is it that really gives you meaning? Now, the things that we are, we are most liable to lose as we age or as we're sick, we're liable to lose our fame, we're liable to lose our fortune, right? We're liable to lose our wealth. That's scary. But then they say, quite rightly, but those aren't the things that give you the most meaning in life. What is it that gives you the most meaning in life? And here's where the Epicureans have a beautiful, sort of beautiful answer, and they pick it up from Socrates. The thing that gives you meaning is friendship, and they mean that very broadly. So they were unique in their community. They included women in their community, not primarily for sexual relations, but they considered that the ability to obtain meaningful relationships was crucial. And with those, and okay, meaningful relationships, not just the relationships, but being able to exercise philosophia, the pursuit of wisdom and self-transcendence. And the point is that as long as you are, that is always available to you. And that any of the pain you're suffering from the loss of any of, the, uh, any of these things is ultimately manageable by you. You can learn to manage it. Now, whether or not you ultimately agree with the Epicureans, right? Do you see what they're doing here? They're refusing to accept. I'm afraid of death. They're saying, wait, 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 wait. Are you? Do you really want immortality? What you're actually afraid of is losing your agency, which you've identified with these things, but that's not actually where your ultimate happiness lies. That as long as you have cognitive agency, you can cultivate philosophical friendship. And Epicurus did this right to his very last moment, even though suffering from some horrible stomach exemplified what he's talking about, such that when you die, it doesn't matter to you. So, his disciples, they would, and Epicurus had other ways, he tried to get us to not be anxious about the gods, right? Famously crafting some of the first arguments that are used by modern day atheists against, you know, being concerned about the gods. I, don't, I wouldn't say Epicurus was an atheist. He's a non-theist. He basically argues that the gods are irrelevant. And therefore, paying attention to them or being overly concerned with them, 
Being anxious about them and their nebulous threat is not something you should rationally do. So, Epicurus's disciples would practice internalizing Epicurus. They would write his sentences on their household walls, on their household utensils. They would practice. They would form communities together where they would reinforce all of these practices where you constantly train in being able to accept your mortality. Now, I think this is valuable to us. And I think one of the things that any wisdom tradition should do is give us a way of responding to our mortality. I would recommend that that project hasn't stopped. I recommend Tillich's book, The Courage to Be, as a discussion about that from a more modern context. And as I said to you, we are not caught by the usual framing, right? Either you believe in an afterlife or your life, your current life is meaningless. Instead, the Epicureans say there's an alternative strategy, there's an alternative therapy for dealing with the anxiety, and that is by learning how, not just learning beliefs, but learning how to live in the acceptance of your mortality. Now, while I think this is relevant, I don't think that their diagnosis is sufficient. I do not think that the meaning crisis of the Hellenistic period was driven primarily or solely by a fear of mortality. Why? Because mortality has always been with us and always will be with us. I think they're right that periods of chaos and domicide exacerbate. We know this from mortality salience research, right? Things that are making us feel more vulnerable tend to make our mortality and our terror around it more salient to us. But I think there's another school that gets a better understanding of what was going on in the Hellenistic period and gives a more comprehensive answer. And this is the Stoic school. Now, Stoicism is very relevant because Stoicism is a direct and explicit ancestor to some of our current forms of psychotherapy. The current forms of psychotherapy that are the most evidence-based for being effective, the cognitive therapies like cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive therapy, etc., directly come out of Stoicism. You read Aaron Beck's book, for example, on cognitive therapy, he repeatedly states this and cites Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and others. So the way we are trying to deal with issues of anxiety, and if you probably noticed, we have an anxiety depression crisis in our culture, is we are very much putting into practice things that originated with the Stoics. Not as much from the Epicureans. So that means the Stoics have a different diagnosis of the problem and a different prognosis for the answer. So what's their issue? 
They also believe we're suffering from a kind of anxiety, a kind of suffering of a loss of agency and the distress around that, because that's, of course, what's shared by all of these schools confronting uh, the Hellenistic uh, crisis, meaning crisis, crisis of domicile. But they have a different interpretation of it. Now, we have to do a bit of history. There's, a there's quite a bit more history that comes out of, uh, out, directly out of Socrates and flows into Stoicism. I want to go over this a little bit carefully with you. So, we have Socrates, and we know one of his greatest disciples is Plato, but he has another one, Antisthenes. Plato wrote dialogues because he was trying to get us to emulate and eventually internalize Socratic and Lenkus, that question and answer process that Socrates made famous. When Antisthenes was asked what he had learned from Socrates, he argued, he didn't argue, he just simply stated, he didn't make an argument, he just simply stated that he learned how to converse with himself. Now, that sounds like, well, I talk to myself all day long. Okay, so that's exactly the thing. This doesn't mean, right, your internal, just talking to yourself, it doesn't really, and, and the problem with that is that talking to yourself is often what goes seriously awry in anxiety and depression. This is what psycho, psychologists and psychotherapists mean by rumination, when that talking to yourself gets caught up in those parasitic processing spirals and it just spins out of control. Antisthenes means something else. He means he learned to do with himself what Socrates was able to do with him. He really learned how to internalize Socrates. So although the Epicureans, right, pattern themselves on Socrates, they come out of Socrates, right? The Stoicism is really something close to being a religion that's trying to internalize Socrates. So that Socrates is basically, and I don't mean this disrespectfully because the Stoics certainly wouldn't, Socrates is turned into a systematic set of psychotechnologies that you internalize into your metacognition. So, what became crucial for Plato, as we saw, was argumentation. But for Antisthenes, the actual confrontation with Socrates was more important. Both Plato and Antisthenes are interested in the transformation that Socrates is affording. Plato sees this happening through argumentation, Antisthenes sees it as happening through confrontation. Because, and you, you can see how they're both right. Because in Socratic Alenkus, Socrates comes up and he argues with you, but of course he's also confronting you. He talked about how he's sort of slamming the actual revolution into your face. So, Antisthenes has a 
follower, Diogenes, and Diogenes epitomizes this. This confrontation. And by looking at the kinds of confrontation, we can start to see what the followers of Antisthenes are doing. So Diogenes basically does something analogous to provocative performance art. He gets in your face in a way that tries to provoke you to realizations, those kinds of insights that will challenge you. He tries to basically create aporia in you, that shock experience that you had when confronting Socrates that challenges you to radically transform your life. But instead of using argumentation and discussion as Socrates did and Plato picked up on, they were really trying to hone in on how to try to be as provocative as possible. So famously you know about one of these, it became a card in the tarot and it became a album cover for Led Zeppelin. You have the man, right, with the, with the lamp, walking, wandering about, the hermit with the lamp. Well, this is Diogenes. He walked into the marketplace, carrying around the lamp, and looking, and looking, and looking, and looking. And everybody said, well, what are you looking for? And he just kept looking and looking. What are you looking for? What, you, what is it? What is it? And then he said, I'm looking for one honest man. And then everybody gets, got pissed off at him, because they are so intrigued by all this looking and questing, and then when it comes something that, right, and, and they're pissed off because they know he's right, because they're in the marketplace, and everybody's lying and cheating and stealing, right? But they don't want to know that. They don't want to pay attention to that. Right? Now, that sounds sort of, yeah, that's kind of cool and courageous. Yeah, but Diogenes does other things that you might not find so cool Courageous. Well, they're courageous at least, but they're not, you don't find them cool. Diogenes also famously came into the center of the marketplace and masturbated in public. And most of, and we're, all, we're all going like, ew, ew, right? How are these two things possibly related? Well, here's how they're related, right? The group of people that start to take shape in this tradition are called the cynics. It's not our modern meaning of the word, so I'm going to use a capital C because this just means, you know, being suspicious that everybody has an, an ulterior motive or a secret agenda. That's not what is meant here. This means actually living like a dog because Diogenes also famously lived outside of Athens in a barrel. So let me tell you one more story and, we, and then we'll try to connect all of them. So. Alexander, the future emperor of the world, on his ascendance into godhood, comes to visit Diogenes. So you can imagine, here's the whole, like, all of this entourage, and, er and here comes Alexander to visit Diogenes, and he comes up to Diogenes and he says, um, I can give you, like, half the world, what do you want? And all Diogenes says is, could you move a little to the left? You're blocking my sunlight. So why is he living in a barrel? Why is that his answer to Alexander? Why does he look for one honest man? Why does he masturbate in public? Like, what is going on? Well, 
the Cynics had a particular understanding of the Hellenistic domicile. They had the idea that what causes us to suffer isn't what we set is what we set our heart on. It's not just the particular that we set our heart on our life and we're afraid of losing it in death. We can set our heart on all kinds of things that ultimately will cause us to suffer. Why? Well, their idea is when we set our hearts on the wrong things, those things will fail us, and that's how we suffer. You can see some similarities to some aspects of Buddhism and to some of the asceticism uh, that the Buddha first practiced himself. So the cynics came to the conclusion that what the Hellenistic period was showing is that many of the things that we take for granted, and think about what that mean, word means, we take them as being part of the structure of reality, are actually not fundamentally real. They don't have staying power. They're not permanent. They're actually man-made. They are historically, culturally dependent, and they are temporary. And when we set ourselves on these things, the current of events can easily and readily wash them away, and then we are left bereft. Our hearts are torn from us, and that is how we experience domicile. Okay, so what should we do then? Well, you should learn, not just acquire a set of beliefs, Diogenes isn't just believing things, he's living in a certain place in a certain way. Right? You should learn how to set your heart on the kinds of things that are not man-made, are not contingent, that will not be swept away by events. What are those kinds of things? Well, one are the laws of the natural world. So this is why this Diogenes lives in a barrel. He wants to live as much as he can like an animal, in one sense. In another sense, he doesn't want to live like an animal at all. But he wants to live as much by natural law as opposed to man-made law. He doesn't want to be invested in man-made cultural institutions or practices, cultural, political value systems, because those will end. And then if we have set our heart upon them, our hearts will be broken. So you want to, as much as you can, live according to the patterns of nature, because those are not man-made, and those will not disappear with the change in history of culture. Now, if it was just that, then of course Diogenes would just live like an animal. But the cynics also said, in addition to natural law, there are moral laws. There are moral laws as to what is a proper way to be a good human being. Now, in, you, know, you may say, but isn't that all culturally relative? And of course, that's a big dispute. But one of the things that the cynics did was to try and make a distinction between moral principles that are culturally based, sorry, uh, 
moral principles that are not culturally based and purity codes that are culturally historically based. And they are similar to each other in ways such that we can often confuse them together. So a good way of understanding this is in terms of more modern language of guilt versus shame. Now again, we use these terms interchangeably and uh, we shouldn't because having a distinction between them is useful. Guilt is your distress at having realized you've broken a moral principle. Shame is your distress at having violated a purity code. Let me give you an example. If, as I was delivering this video, there was some sort of malfunction in my clothing and my clothing suddenly fell down, I would be deeply embarrassed. I would experience shame. Why? Because I violated a code, a cultural code, which is I'm supposed to be fully clothed in a public discourse, and I am, right? But if that happened, have I done anything immoral? Some would say, no, you didn't do anything immoral, you didn't do anything wrong. So I don't feel guilt, I feel shame. Sometimes they can be against each other, right? You may be made to feel ashamed even though you're doing something that you believe, let's say in a justified way, is morally right. Many people who supported blacks during the civil rights movement were subjected to terrific amounts of shaming, even though they didn't experience any guilt in what they were doing. See, purity codes are designed to keep the categorical boundaries that make a culture in a particular historical period run the way it's running. They are highly tied up with the invested power structures who are usually highly invested in things running the way they're running. So we have lots of important boundaries that are protected by purity codes. So for example, just to give you one more example, just to make it clear, none of you I hope would be distressed by me doing the following. Here's some water. Okay? Imagine if I do the following. I collect lots of saliva in my mouth. Lots of it, just tons and tons of saliva. And then I spit it into the glass. Until there's gobs and gobs of saliva in my glass. And now I swirl it around, just imagine it. Come on. And then I drink it. And now you're going, ew. Now notice, if I mix the water inside my mouth and swallow, you're fine with that. But if the saliva comes outside of my mouth into the glass, you find it repellent. Okay? That's because there's an important purity code here. The purity code is, this is the boundary of John, and things inside this are John, and pieces of John should not come out into the world. John should not spit, John should not fart, John should not burp, John should not cut his fingernails off and leave them in front of you. John should even not leave his bed unmade because he's leaving his impression behind, and that's yucky. Okay, that's a purity code. Now, very often, we confuse purity codes with moral codes. We confuse purity codes 
because we confuse our disgust reaction that's often purity code based with a moral judgment that should be based on reasoning and evidence. Please listen to me very carefully with what I want to say. First of all, I'll give you something non-controversial. Both of my parents are dead, but suppose they were alive. I don't want to see them having sex. I don't. I would go, ooh. Ah. Is that a moral argument? Of course not. There's nothing immoral with them having sex. That's why I'm here. In a similar way, and please hear what I'm saying, I might not want to see two men having sex. That doesn't mean that that is any way a moral judgment on my part. A lot of the ways we have persecuted gay people is because we have confused a purity code disgust reaction with a legitimate moral argument. The people who started the process and we're still pulling them apart today, right now, right here, right now, were the cynics. What Diogenes was trying to do was get you to pull apart the moral code from the purity code. He did nothing immoral by masturbating in public. But although lots of people were doing stuff that was culturally acceptable in the marketplace, most of it was immoral. Do you see? Alexander comes to him and offers him power and fame those are all the things the Stoics say are no good. Because, sorry, the cynics say are no good because if you set your hearts on them, those are man-made, human-defined, and therefore your heart will eventually be broken. Set your heart on what won't get broken. So, the cynics developed this very powerful, provocative, way of enacting Socrates and trying to get us, the cynics are trying to get us to realize what we're setting our heart on and to pull apart our automatic disgust reactions from moral reflection on what we're doing. Now Diogenes has a disciple Crates, and then Crates has a disciple Zeno. This is not the Zeno of Zeno's paradoxes. This is a different Zeno. Now, whereas the cynics tended to be sort of hostile to Plato because of his emphasis on argumentation, Zeno was deeply influenced by the cynics, but he also really liked Plato. He saw that there was value in the argumentation, and he realized that there's deep connections between your ability to rationally reflect and your ability to use your reason. So what he wanted to do was integrate the rational argumentation and reasoning of Plato with right, the provocative aspects of the cynics. So he crafted a way of life that put the two together and then he would walk up and down a stoa this is a covered colonnade in Athens, teaching this new integration. That's where we get the name Stoic from. Stoic doesn't mean being 
you know, stiff upper lip and tolerating the decline of the British Empire or, or stuff like that. It means something much more sophisticated. So Zeno's insight was there's something deeply right about the cynics, but they're getting something wrong. Right? They're concentrating too much on the product and not enough on the process. concentrating too much on what we're attaching our heart to rather than the very process of attachment itself. Because the Stoics said, yes, particular cultures and history are variable, but being social isn't. Human beings are inherently social. Yes, particular political cultural and historical institutions and traditions are variable, but it is part of our humanity to be social. We shouldn't be leaving the polis. Because notice that Diogenes and Socrates have to actually enter the polis to practice their philosophy. So, Zeno said, it's not what you set your heart on, it's how you set your heart. And this is always a hallmark of rationality. One of the crucial, and this is good, like even recent work on rationality, Keith Stanovich, and I, the hallmark of rationality is learning not to focus just on the products of your cognition, but find valuable and pay attention to the processes. What process? What is this process of setting your heart on? Well, it's something we've already talked about. It's this process of co-identification. It's the process by which the agent-arena relationship is set up. It's the process by which you're simultaneously assuming an identity and assigning an identity. And you're doing that all the time, unconsciously. Now, the Stoics say, ah, that process of co-identification is where your identity is being formed. That's where your agency is taking shape. But if you mindlessly co-identify, if you do it automatically and reactively, you will, if you'll allow me the acronym, you'll mar that whole process. It'll be open to all kinds of distortion, self-deception, self-destruction. See here again, the axial ideas. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to pay attention to this process. We need to pay attention to how we're assuming and assigning identities. We need to do it in such a way that we can strengthen our agency in the face of the threat of domicile. So what I want to explore with you next time what did the Stoics actually advocate as practices? And how are these currently being taken up in our own psychotherapeutic endeavors to deal with our own version of domicide and the meaning crisis? Thank you very much for your time and attention.
Make some noise for Vakey John and Akira the Dawn. Meaning Crisis and Chill. Next week on Meaning Crisis and Chill. Marcus Aurelius and Jesus. If that ain't an epic lineup. Yo, if that don't get you jumping at the bit, if that don't get you queuing up from dust till dawn to get tickets, I don't know what will. Marcus Aurelius and Jesus. Next week on Meaning Crisis and Chill. How to survive domesticide. Ooh. Man like gaming with Leo, what's up baby? Says damn. Next week about to be the biggest banger. Word X pieces, people gonna scalp tickets for the next one. Yo, yo, yo. Me, Athena, Marcus Aurelius was a real one though. Yo, yo, yo. Real! Fool killer, what's up? Everybody, what's up? What's up? Is that for you? You can spark up a cigarette now if that's your vibe, you know what I mean? You can spark up a cigarette or you can spark up a metaphorical cigarette, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? The, uh, you know, we just finished making love, so to speak, and now we get to talk about it. Hey. Hey, hey. Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Number one gym fan says, when is the next test? I need to take better notes. This is a cliffhanger. A cliffhanger, John. A cliffhanger indeed. What XP says, thank you, Sensei JV. Yo, yo, so what was everybody's main takeaways from that? What did you take away from that that was useful? Maybe there was something that wasn't useful. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What up, Skeptic Rise? Just did some DJing. Congratulations, baby. Feels good, huh? Bless it feels good to be a gangster. Yo, yo. Yo, yo. Sway says, what did the Stoics actually want people to do, ATB? Jack off in the marketplace? Tune in next week and find out. Yo. Mason. Just the philosopher king and the holy spirit spitter. What's up? Yeah, yeah. Olive just What's up? What's up, you? What XP? It's not what you set your hearts on, it's how you set your heart. When John V said that, I was like, Damn! set your heart on it's how you set your heart yeah that was one of them bits i remember when i first listened to this and i was cruising around on an e-scooter it's one of the bits that made me nearly get killed and that guilt shame shit yo that shit nearly got me killed as well 
You'd be cruising around on an e-scooter listening to this shit, trying to take notes. Yo. B. Athena says that was a bar. Yo. So many bars. So many bars. In this series. In this series. I know we do not have to agree with everything, every interpretation. That is the point. That is why here in the Meaning Wave Autonomous Zone, we have this kaleidoscope of minds through which to observe. We all, all these minds, they all observe in the same phenomenon from a slightly different angle, you know? Sometimes quite a different angle, sometimes from all the way over yonder. You know what I mean? And sometimes from all the way over that direction. And of course, what we aim at here is for you to be able to see the full picture from each of these angles. No one man has all the keys, and there are many rooms in the mansion. Yeah! Be Athena says the purity and morality codes give me something to chew on. I mean, that's a big part of what's going on now. I mean, again, it's been interesting observing the rise of this latest kind of societal meme, which really got swinging and kicking in the comics industry first, you know? And now they're just straight up purity testing everybody in that industry. And they're doing it across industries now, of course, it's got everywhere, but that's very much what they're doing. You know, that's what the Gina Carano thing was. She failed the purity test. They came purity test and uh, pum, pum, pum. Thank you, Isotropic Radio. God bless you. Pum. They came purity testing her. They said, yo, put your ting in the bio. That's a purity test. If you do not put your ting in the bio, you fail the purity test. And then you are marked. You know, when you are marked, like you, 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 you smeared some, some ghost blood or whatever on your door. They're gonna come knocking and they keep gonna keep knocking until they kick your door in. Bye, Joe. Purity, purity tests all over. It's funny now, you know, the contemporary purity tests are the exact inverse of the ones just from 20 years ago. Just 20 years ago. You could go ask someone in the, you could go to the marketplace and you could ask a question, an A or B question. If you got the B answer in 1990 or something. Okay, cool, you're fine. You get the B answer today, you are yeeted, you are out. And we'll see what the situation is next week. Shit is moving fast out there, baby. Too fast for too fast for even even the uh, the gatekeepers to be able to keep up, you know. Shit's moving fast out there, it's very interesting. Yeah. Cindy Bailey says I'm purity tested every time I go in public. Is that a euphemism? Are you in the marketplace? Going in public. Yo! Mason, purity test given by a person with condescending tone. Ooh, I gotta go. Skeptic Rise says the gates be moving. Yo, baby, the, uh, what they call it? The, um, Overton window. That motherfucker, pew, pew, that, that, that thing, puming around like, you ever play Undertale? You know what I mean? It's, it's like an undertale when, you, when you're trying to mess with that spider lady, you know what I mean? That Overton window be zipping about all over the motherfucker. She. She. Anyway, baby. Baby, wave on top of itself! John Grady says it's the mark of an intelligent mind to entertain an idea without believing. 
Well, there you go, baby. What'd your boy Terrence say? I don't believe any of this stuff. But it's real, baby. You give your belief up to a thing, that thing owns you. She. What up, what up? Uh, where is Maria Lezak? Shout out to Maria Lezak. She said, so nice to see JBP smile talking about your music. Yo, that was very lovely. That was indeed very lovely. You know, and I look forward to sharing the, uh, sharing the conversation we had. There was a lot of smiling and a lot of not smiling. It's an emotional roller coaster, frankly. Emotional roller coaster by Joe. But uh, yeah, it was a beautiful thing. It, did, it was a beautiful thing, I gotta say. Uh, that was a lovely thing to see. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson had a conversation with uh, Dave Rubin today, and I think, oh, yesterday, yesterday. Well, it was released today or yesterday. And uh, they spoke uh, about uh, Meaning Wave. Yeah, about Meaning Wave. And it was very lovely. And shit, I could just pull it up. I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm fortunate. He's amazing. The synthwave stuff with you and a synthwave, as we know it. I'm fortunate, I suppose. To, do you know who Akira the Dawn is? Of course. No, those. He's amazing. The synthwave stuff with you and a, he's amazing. I suppose. To, do you know who Akira the Dawn is? Of course. No, those. He's amazing. The synthwave stuff with you and a couple of the other guys we know. It's incredible. Incredible. I get such a kick out of that, and uh, it seems that my spontaneous speech has a rhythm and he's been able to capitalize on that and capitalize watch that all the time out of the corner of my eye because it's such a strange phenomenon to be set to music like that <laughs> but anyways and people will resist it, resist it. Resist it. anyway <laughs> uh, there's a longer that you can see the full context of that conversation because uh, they, have a, they have a really nice conversation about a little conversation about music, you know, so uh, that's up on the channel and you can watch the whole interview, of course, on uh, the Ruben Report. The Ruben Report. Sway says, and a couple of the other guys that we know, Dave Ruben, <laughs> a couple of the other guy, hey, the other guy. Oh, God bless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what's he doing? Hello. Looking very serious behind me there. And... Uh, Ah, yes, he's got a book out today. Shouts out to The Good Doctor. The Good Doctor has a book out today called Beyond Order. You'll go cop that and let me know uh, how you enjoy it. You know, no doubt we'll be uh, discussing that more, I'm sure. Uh, there is order to go beyond, obviously. Yo! Cindy Bailey says, way more than a couple guys. Is that a euphemism? Is Cindy Bailey still talking about the marketplace? What? Uh, <laughs> what guys they know? I don't know. How many of the ones they know? Uh, do they know Marcus Aurelius? Do they know who have we done recently? Has Naval ever been on the Rubin Report? I don't think he's it. How's that? How about Graham? Graham Hancock. Cindy Bailey says JBP is so cute. I'm glad he's sporting a tan. Uh, JBP has really good lighting. <laughs> when we spoke, we were in the setup section. Uh, I was quite pleased because I'd actually got the lighting in my studio next door quite nice, you know. And he goes, my lighting's best. He said something like, my lighting's best again 
or I have the best lighting again. And he's so pleased with himself. He has really good lighting in his study uh, or whatever that room. I think that's his study, you know. And he was very proud of his lighting. And, um, and he was right. He did have the best lighting. But also, you know, I was using an, an inferior webcam, you know. So i got to up my camera game, frankly. i got to up the camera game. You know, we've... Um, We've been rocking on a on a Logitech for for the whole time, baby. The whole time we've been doing this, we've been lock, rocking on this Logitech, you know, on a bunch of Logitechs. And frankly, you know, I was grateful for those Logitechs. Those Logitechs was uh, being scalped like crazy in the early days of uh, of uh, about this time last year, you know, and April and May <laughs> and so on and so forth. So shout out to my Logitechs, baby. They done great work, you know. Great, great work. Coney W has a question. Says, does the shipment of the merch store reach Europe? I really like the shirts on the store. The answer is yes, of course. Of course, we ship to Europe. Of course, we ship to Europe, and we ship to Europe every day. Every day, we'd be shipping to Europe, uh, whether it's for um, my mum or other Europeans, you know. <laughs> Shout out to our European audience. Uh, for whom we created, partly for whom we created the Meaning Wave Morning Show, of course. Because they'd be asleep right now, you know, them Europeans, they'd be sleepy right now. It's like 2, 3 in the morning for them. By the way, Isotropic Radio, thank you for the support. You are very much appreciated. Uh, Aldemis Adames, thank you for the support. Thank you, uh, Digimedia Dude. Thank you, Matt Lally. Thank you, Point Curation. Thank you, BJ. And thank you, everybody. Who supports this endeavor if you want to support this endeavor you can you can go uh, meaningwave.com and cop some of the epic garments we have like this wonderful t-shirt like these epic trousers we got the best pants in the game I am telling you ain't nobody in the game got got this you know what I mean go uh, PewDiePie ain't got this you know what I mean and uh, you know Peterson ain't got this you know what I mean he ain't got velvet leopard pants you know what I mean? Who else you know got the velvet leopard pants? She. She. Come on. Come on, baby, baby. Come on. Uh, Cindy Bailey says, God bless Michaela. She really saved her parents from the belly of the whale. Oh, I'm looking forward to the uh, watching the all of the Michaela and our mama cast. You know, the Michaela and the mama cast. That's epic right there. Tammy cast. Epic Tammy cast. Sway says, I got a Logitech, makes me look good on Zoom. Logitech, I mean, look at this, baby. I look, I look good, right? I look good. I, look, I mean, my aura be glowing. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, shit. Anyway, uh, I got to get out of here, baby. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom. We're getting out of here. And we'll be back tomorrow. Where is my, where is my, friend? where is my, um, my shark heroic, um, shark hero? Where's everyone's favorite heroic shark? Heroic, sh- favorite heroic shark. Uh, could you do me a favor? And could you, uh, ooh, it's Wilma. Hello, Wilma. Wilma! I wonder if Jocko is working or not. Let's see. He did work for a bit, didn't he? And, uh, but he's not working now. Is it a scene thing? Let me test something. Let's go test. All right, so that scene, no Jocko. Ah, he's working on that scene. Look, there he is. Ah, so he's not working on the main scene for some reason. And uh, 
or the close-up. Let's see if he's working on the close-up. If you're listening on the podcast, you're wondering what's going on, um, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, he's not working there. He's working there. He's not working there. And uh, he is working there. So there you go. So that's narrowed it down for me, frankly. So uh, I got to get out of here. I got to fix. I got to fix my floating Jocko head. You know, that's what I got to do. I got to fix my floating Jocko head by Jove. And uh, I will look forward to seeing you in the morning. Let's uh, spin that wheel. Let's spin that wheel if I can. If I can get it up, so to speak, there it is. It's a wheel. We we played Motown this morning. We had a wonderful morning this morning playing Motown records. It was so nice. There goes that wheel, baby. What is it going to land upon? What is it going to land upon? Hip-hop! Ooh, something's hip-hop. What is it? My, my laptop's in the way of the truth. 90s hip-hop. There you go. It's 90s hip-hop tomorrow morning. Well, that's easy and fun. Hurrah! 90s hip-hop tomorrow morning. And on a, on the Meaning Wave morning show. Wonderful news. Wonderful news, brothers and sisters. I'll see you there. I'll see you there. Uh, Word XP says, I've got to fix my floating Jocko head. I need that on a shirt with the floating Jocko head, right? Boom! Boom! Hey, guys, thank you so much for being here. I had a wonderful time with you, as always. And I look forward to sharing more wonderful times with you tomorrow. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow morning. Uh, seven Twitch, Twitch Seven, pium pium pium. Uh, once again, thank you to everyone who's been here. Go to meaningwave.com and uh, tell somebody the truth of the matter. And you know the truth of the matter. Meaning Wave exists. It does. If you're on Twitch right now, we're going to go raid somebody. We're going to go jump in somebody's club. Uh, if you want to join us, we're at Twitch.tv/slash/AkiraTheDon right now. Akira the Don Twitch. We go and jump in someone else's club and say, Hey, Meaning Wave exists. You know. Joe Rogan disciples respect the floating Jocko head, says Craigie Dale. There you go, baby. It's true. The truth is this. Meaning Wave exists. Uh, the Good Doctor's new book is out. Go support The Good Doctor's new book. And, uh, you know, love to you and your family, you beautiful, beautiful thing. You God bless. Let's go. Let's go. Woo! Three, two, one. Bye, five. Welcome, Glitchy Grunt, and goodbye.